We're at Genesis chapter 9, and uh, we're going to pick up at verse 18. Genesis chapter 9. We're in this series called Unglued. So this is the third to last sermon in this series. Two more. I asked uh, 1.0 if you would come in and finish us off in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel. I remember in college, I read a book called Undaunted Courage, uh, written by biographer Stephen Ambrose, and he was tracing that epic adventure of the West with Meriwether Lewis. So when you think of that name, uh, you think of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Now, Ambrose was a masterful biographer, and uh, uh, he um, takes us through this journey when Thomas Jefferson had sent Lewis off in 18, just after the uh, purchase of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. He wanted to gain a sense of this new western territory that we had just acquired as a country and the resources that were contained within and also to try to find the most direct route by water that they could in order to reach the Asian continents for trade. Ambrose takes us into the, the danger. He shows the, the brilliance and the determination of Meriwether Lewis. And some of the stories are just crazy. Uh, when they get out west, there's grizzly bears charging at the guys, and they're pulling the gun up and shooting them in the last minute, taking them down before they're consumed. They have interactions with natives, some of them good, some of them not so good. Hunger, because they don't understand uh, the fauna of this area, and also cold winters. Yet they pushed forward. They continued on to the Pacific coast. It was truly an act of undaunted courage. But what left an indelible impact on me as a young college student was to see the way that Meriwether Lewis self-destructed when he came back from that trip. He just wasn't the same man who had gone out west, the man who had his eyes full of adventure. You could almost say that Meriwether Lewis never returned from that trip. He was still somewhere in the rugged wilderness of the Pacific Northwest. And his story ends in tragedy. On September 3rd, 1809, Lewis set out for Washington, D.C., where he had hoped to take care of some debts. He had kind of gotten himself in a little bit of personal trouble, and he was going to take the journals that he had meticulously notated over to Washington, D.C. to have it published so that maybe he could make a little bit of money on that. As he was traveling there, he stopped at Grinder's Inn. It was 70 miles southwest of Nashville, Tennessee, and he retired in a one-cabin room. In the pre-dawn hours of October 11th, the innkeeper's wife heard gunshots sounding off in Lewis's room, and one of the servants ran into the room and found him with multiple wounds, some to the gut, one to the head. Now, the circumstances surrounding Lewis's death, they are somewhat speculated over, but most, including his good friend Thomas Jefferson, believe that Lewis took his own life. I remember where I was when I was reading this story. I was in the Marshall Common, sitting up in the loft, hearing the low murmur of people talk, and thinking to myself, how can it end like this? How's that possible? Meriwether Lewis had built up to epic proportions in my mind. 
And yet, the thing that struck me the most was that I was no, not reading a fictional story. I was reading real life. Let me ask you, when did you first learn that your heroes are susceptible to the same wounds, the same failings, the same frailties as you are? They fall down and they scrape their knees too. They get cut with a knife. They bleed red blood. Um, they are tempted by things like bribes and lust and those types of things. And yes, even our heroes sometimes succumb to temptation. Well, this morning we're going to read of another one of our heroes and see that he was subject to the same flaws as everyone else. And if you get it locked in your mind that Christianity is a perfect religion for perfect people, well, get that out of your mind. Christianity is a perfect religion because we have a perfect God who sent a perfect Savior to take care of a very, very imperfect people. And that's what we'll see in our text this morning. So let's look at it. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18, and uh, we'll read a little bit of that. If you uh, don't have a Bible, by the way, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So you're just looking for chapter 9, verse 18. Now the text tells us that the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan, and these three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, and Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backwards, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward so that they would not see the nakedness of their father. Let's stop there for a minute. Now, I just have to ask the question, why is it that Harry Fletcher gets to preach all these great sermons on prophecy in Matthew 24 and 25. I mean, it's interesting, it's gripping, he's talking about future things, people are interested in uh, future things, the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and who doesn't want a little bit of hope in their life? And then when I get back to the pulpit, I'm preaching about Noah being drunk and naked and his son looking at him. I mean, does that seem odd to anyone else here? Then again, I am the one who chose to preach through the book of Genesis. So you make your own bed, you got to sleep in it. So here we are, and I'm just going to make this message pretty short and sweet. The application is simple. Let's not beat around the bush. God's word is saying to you this morning, don't get drunk and take off all of your clothes. You got it? Pretty easy, right? So chemo and team, you guys can come back up here and we'll just move on. No. <laughs> It's not that easy. Though that is a true application, and I encourage you to do that. <laughs> There's a reason that I have titled this sermon, Noah Unglued, instead of Noah Unclothed. And we're going to think more deeply about it. Now let's first and foremost ask ourselves, why in the world would the Bible put something like this in it? Right? I mean, I think we can all agree that Noah's state is not the most flattering portrayal. Here you have righteous, rescued Noah laying drunk in the floor of his tent. 
We think to ourselves, wait a minute, that can't be the Bible. I mean, the Bible is all about nice people doing nice things. And this is a little bit, well, Netflixy, R-rated. It's too out of control. Well, friend, the Bible is the most realistic book you will ever read. It's the most true-to-life book that you will ever read because it's the most sensitive to the human condition that you will ever read. A.W. Pink writes, it is human to err, but it is also human to conceal the blemishes of those we admire. Had the Bible been a human production, had it been written by uninspired historians, the defects of its leading characters would have been ignored. Or if recorded at all, an attempt to extenuation would have been made, but the Bible doesn't gloss over the character flaws of its people. Does it? No, the Bible is no merely human book. It's a word from God to tell us about himself and to tell us about ourselves. So then the next question is then, why is the Bible telling us this story? Look at verse 21. It gives us a clue to the main point. Noah drank of the vine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. Now, the language of being uncovered should invoke in our understanding or our attention Uh, uh, thoughts of the fall of Adam and Eve. So essentially, Moses wants us to make this correlation that Adam fell, Noah has fallen. Adam was created and placed in paradise. He had everything he needed. He sinned. And Noah was the last righteous man standing on earth. Out of all the people living in the flood generation, Genesis 6, 8, Noah was the only one who found favor in the eyes of God, and yet what? He sins. Noah essentially is another Adam. He is the hero who bleeds red like we bleed, who cries tears like we cry. But most significantly, what the Bible is saying to you is he sins dreadful sins like we sin. That's the point. If Noah isn't immune to the sin problem, then no one is immune to the sin problem. He is the last righteous man standing on earth. If he will fall, you will fall. Romans 3.23, Paul gives us that theology, doesn't he? He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does all mean? All means all. All means Noah. It means Moses. It means David. It means Ruth. It means Mary. All means the heroes that we look at, like Mother Teresa and Billy Graham and Amy Carmichael and Corey Ten Boom and D.L. Moody and any other heroes that you have built up in your mind. All means you. All means me. Genesis is carefully, even painstakingly, telling us that when Adam and Eve unglued everything by sinning, they most significantly unglued the human heart. And this is a problem that lives within you. It's a problem that you can't fix on your own. It's a problem where even the best of us will succumb to it. It's a problem that only a Savior can fix. You see, the Bible is telling us these stories to build a road map to Jesus. If you miss the signposts along the way, if you think this is just a moral story about not getting drunk and naked, well, you're missing the boats. Look ahead and see Jesus. Now, 
I do want to consider some of the applicational threads from this section because uh, Noah's story could be your story too. I, I regularly ask the question when we're looking through the Old Testament, what if your life was a biblical reality TV show? What if the cameras were following you around in your home and in your car while you're driving and as you're at work? Paul tells us that the scriptures were written to make us wise, particularly for salvation. They serve as an example to us and a warning to us. So what can we learn from Noah's biblical reality TV show? Well, I think three things. One, comfort and ease tend to dull our spiritual sensitivities. You see, Noah's sin happens in a state where he's settled down. He's planted a vineyard. I've found that when I go through long seasons of comfort and ease that it can easily turn into moments of indulgence. Have you ever noticed that when you go on vacation or you're over the holiday seasons or maybe even in your retirement, how easy it is just to kind of dull? You see, the Bible tells us repeatedly that we are to remain on guard, that we are to be spiritually vigilant people. Romans 12, 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't let your guard down. Keep the spiritual sensitivities up. Or like Noah, you might find yourself spiritually drunk and unclothed. Secondly, after a great victory, we can still fall. Some have even said particularly after a great victory, we can fall. Nothing worse, right, when you're watching an athletic competition, a football game, something like that, and your team celebrates too soon. Don't you just hate that? The wide receiver catches the ball. He's running down towards the end zone. He's making, uh, he looks back, he sees the defense behind him, and he starts doing the wide leg dance, right? And lo and behold, out of his blind spot, there's an angry defender who smears him like a bug on the windshield, Right? Well, Christian, this side of heaven, you can get smeared any time too if you don't keep your guard up. The point the Bible is saying is keep your eyes focused on the end zone. Run like each step counts. Don't celebrate victory too soon. You want to say the words like Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's when the party starts. But until then, We've got work to do. We've got an enemy who hates our guts, and he loves to come alongside and smear us. Thirdly, uh, in the Bible, falls often take place in the golden years. The other day, I had a lunch with the world-renowned Reverend Bob Dontremont, and if you don't know this yet, he actually has a special VIP table over there at Wimpy's. They roll out the red carpet for him. Often, paparazzi is hidden around the place. And after leaving lunch, we were walking out the door together, and he told me about one of his interactions he had had with another gentleman who was coming into Wimpy's. He said, I open the door for people often, so I opened the door for this guy, and I said to him, let me hold the door for you there, young man. And I got to say, at almost 94 years young, Bob calls everyone young man. Well, the man didn't really seem to care for his remark. He said, well, I'm older than you. I'm 96 years old. And then 
made a couple of more surly comments after that. So after telling the story, Bob looked at me with a little twinkle in his eye and he said, Rob, I really hope I'm not a crotchety old curmudgeon when I get old. (laughs) But there is a wisdom in that statement. In the Bible, many noble heroes fall in their middle-aged years and golden years. Noah is 600 at this point. He's no spring chicken. David falls in his 50s. Solomon falls to idols when he was old in years. Look through the book of Kings and Chronicles, and I want you to just trace in your mind, every time you read a story about a king, how many times do they start well and end poorly? Why? Why does that happen? Well, it gives us a little insight into that. Uzziah, when he was strong, grew proud. Hezekiah, after he had received an extenuation of his life, His heart grew proud. If you're in your 60s, 70s, beyond, I want to say something clear, that God's word does not have any intention for you to prop your legs up and check out on the spiritual mission. If the Bible understands people's tendencies well, and let me assure you it does, then these years are not the time to let up on serving the Lord and following Jesus. If anything, it's the time to dig in more deeply and constantly say to yourself, I want to finish well. I don't want to be a crotchety old curmudgeon when I get old. John Newton was a man who started poorly but finished well. He lingered until four days before Christmas, 1807. Packed and sealed, he quipped and waiting for the post. As he died at age 82, he whispered to a friend, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Those are the kind of words that will keep you humble, that will help you to finish well. So we're going to move on in this story. And uh, i got to tell you, it's bizarre, and I don't like it any more than you do, but... It's in God's word, so we're going to deal with it. Look with me at verses 22 and 23 now. The text tells us that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took off a garment, or took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, walked backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when I worked in youth ministry, the students would have called Ham a creep. Let's be clear, it's a weird situation, isn't it? But remember, written to make us wise, written to serve as a warning example to us. So why in the world would the Bible be showing this depiction of Ham being a creepy voyeur? First, I think we need to gain a deeper understanding of what sin produces. In verse 21, again, the Hebrew uses that word uncovered, and that word means to be disgracefully exposed. Again, drawing us back to our thoughts of Adam and Eve. And what did Adam and Eve do just after they had eaten of the fruits? They tried to start their own fig leaf fashion design company, right? They were trying to cover their shame. 
So that is one of the major effects of sin. Shame. Shame is the exposure that we experience and others experience when we sin. It can be internal. Uh, We internalize it in the sense of we've said something about someone or we've told someone a lie and every time I'm having a conversation with them, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm found out. It can also be public exposure when the sin becomes known to some or many. And it can be personal. I can experience shame for something I do or it can be communal. Uh, A lot of people can experience shame for something I've done. Uh, Recently, the Southern Baptist Convention has been experiencing the consequences of shame. Um, If you've been following the news clips at all, they recently asked uh, the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Paige Patterson, to resign from his post. Um, really to do with some sermon illustrations that he had told years ago, and they, they didn't find that the advice that he had given at that time to be particularly wise, and it didn't seem like he was willing to kind of come off his position from then. But beyond that, they're undergoing their own kind of Me Too movement. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Theological Seminary, also SVC, shares that sexual misconduct is as old as sin, but the avalanche of sexual misconduct that has come in light in recent weeks is almost too much to bear. These grievous revelations of sin have occurred in churches, denominational ministries, and even in seminaries. He later adds, the terrible swift sword of public humiliation has come with a vengeance. So why do I tell this story? We're not Southern Baptist. Um, I'm not interested in condemning them as an organization. In fact, I don't think that would be the right thing to do, and I'm certainly not interested in defending people who've done wrong things. But I bring this up to illustrate two points. One, no one is above sinning. Christian leaders sin just like anyone else, and when their sin injures another human being, it should be dealt with. Secondly, sin produces shame. Albert Moeller's own words, the terrible swift sword of public humiliation has come with a vengeance. But why are we seeing this distinction between Ham and Shem and Japheth in this story? I think the Bible is trying to ask us the question, what do you do with another person's shame? You see, as you envision this scene, I don't want you to think of a five-year-old accidentally stumbling into his father's tent and laughing over the absurdity of the situation. I want you to understand that Ham is a grown man. He has four boys at this point. The verb saw means something like he gazed with satisfaction. And I don't think the Bible is saying that to say that he was attracted to his father. I think the Bible is saying that he walked in and he took delight in the fact that his father looked silly. Then the word told. So he walks out to his brothers. Again, means something like boldly announcing with delight. And if that's not enough, he likely brought his father's cloak to them as evidence because the text talks of them walking back with a garment to cover up their father. Do you see what is wrong with this situation? Ham gloats over another person's shame. Which begs the question, how do you respond to the sin and shame of others? 
Does it make you laugh, smile? Do you feel a sense of superiority? Find little ways to weave it into conversations so that other people will know? It's been said that people tend to be far-sighted when it comes to sin. They readily see the sins of others. They not so readily see their own sins. But what did Jesus say? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Too many of us love to see the demise of others. The flesh loves to hear about the marriage on the rocks, the the sordid affair, and of course, the leader who falls, right? We love those kind of stories. Just think about the news cycle. If Fox News or CNN or MSNBC committed themselves to reporting only positive stories, well, I got to tell you, they'd go out of business in about two weeks to the other news post that's willing to report the bad stuff, right? Here's something I pray that sticks with you. How you respond to another person's sin and shame is an indication of your character. Let me say that again. How you respond to another person's sin and shame is an indication of your character. But what should your response be? Well, let's look again at Shem and Japheth's response to Noah's sin. Then Shem, verse 23, and Japheth took a garment. They laid it on both of their shoulders. They walked backwards and they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned backwards so that they did not see their father's nakedness. They take great care to preserve human dignity. Friend, even when someone has done something incredibly wrong, they're still an image bearer. And more importantly, when a Christian has done something wrong, they're still your brother or sister in Christ. Shem and Japheth are a living example of 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't gloat when a brother or sister falls. Love cries. Love doesn't make itself look good at their expense. Love makes itself look humble by stooping down to help pick them back up. The word cover does not mean to hide or ignore or to sweep something under the rug. It means to forgive. It means that I know full well what the situation entails, but I choose to forgive the person in spite of it. It means, uh, it doesn't mean to condone, but it does mean to have compassion for the person in what they've done. Have you ever thought about Noah's state of mind after the flood? Chemo and I were talking about this text, and he brought up a good point. He said, just imagine how it must have felt to live with the loss of life that Noah experienced. Maybe turn to the bottle to anesthetize a little bit. I'm not condoning Noah's actions. What he did was wrong, but it does stir up compassion when I put myself into another person's shoes and say, I wonder how I would feel if I went through that. I wish Christians would do that way more often. I can't tell you how many times I've realized that my assumptions about another person have been so wrong. I didn't know the full story. I knew bits and pieces of the story. 
I shouldn't have known this story at all because I was entertaining gossip to get the bits and pieces that I did understand. And then when I find out the story, I feel like a fool. An absolute fool. Amy Carmichael set this standard for her community in India. Never about, only with. It means never talk about someone you are struggling with, only talk with the person who has offended you. Covering does not mean, again, condoning. Sometimes you actually have to have that hard conversation. And who looks forward to those? But there's some wise counsel that I received from 1.0. He said, if you're ever going to confront a sin in someone and you are just so excited about it, you've got all these things loaded in the brain that you're just going to shoot out at the right time so that you can make them look like a fool, you're the last person in the world that should go talk to that person. But in humility, you say to yourself, I'm not adequate. I feel sad for them. This is the last thing in the world that I want to do. You're the right person to go talk to them. Be biblical. Be clear. Be concise. Tell them that you love them. And even though that will be an extremely hard conversation, you are offering that person, the Bible says, life. Now, the story doesn't end here. As we move on, we see that Noah pronounces oracles over each one of his sons. And uh, the point of these oracles is to show us the ripple effects that our actions create. See, we often think that we're kind of making a decision or we're doing an action in a moment of time. And that something that I did, well, that was the past and that doesn't matter anymore. And there's a sense where that's true. In God's grace, he doesn't look at the past and hold it against me. However, when I do something here, irrespective of how I change there, there are ripple effects that move forward. Look at verse 24. It tells us that Noah awakens, right? He awoke from his wine. He knew what his youngest son had done. Let's stop there. So you wake up with this splitting headache. You find that there's a garment laid over you. Logic dictates that something must have happened yesterday. And so Noah goes outside of his tent, and I just want to make clear, fully clothed. And he asks Japheth, his oldest son, what happened. And uh, likely Japheth told him about what Ham had done. Maybe even pulled him aside and said, you know, Dad, you have to work on that drinking problem. Verse 25 begins the pronouncement and is directed at Canaan, Ham's fourth son. The verse reads, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now the big question when you're looking at that verse is to say, why in the world did Noah pronounce the judgment on Canaan and not on Ham? Wasn't it Ham the one who had committed the offense? You notice as you read the passage that Moses makes a couple of points as the author, right? Ham is the father of who? Canaan. Multiple times, right? The Canaanites are his descendants. And as you read on in the Old Testament, you find out that they're the most bitterest enemies of the Israelites. So this is a family of origin story. The Bible often takes us back to the headwaters. 
These are the type of character traits of the father who produced this type of people. Is what Moses is showing us. Noah was simply given the perspective. He could gaze down into the tunnels of history and see where all of this was heading. Now, when God says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, Exodus 20, verse 5, I don't think that he's saying that I hold them responsible for something you did. I think what God is saying there is that who you are today will have implications for who your children are tomorrow. For example, we see that Abraham, later in the story of Genesis, tells a lie. His wife Sarah is beautiful. They go into Egypt, and he doesn't want to uh, be killed so that someone would take his wife. And so what does he do? He says that she's my sister. Pharaoh takes him as his wife, Sarah as his wife, and before a great offense can occur, God warns Pharaoh. Abraham has a son. His name is Isaac. Years later, Isaac does the same exact thing. Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob. The name Jacob means deceiver or trickster. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and I got to tell you, they were a mess as you read the story. Abraham's character flaw finds its way into the character of the third and fourth generation. Now look at uh, Shem and Japheth, verse 26 and 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So the righteous acts of Shem and Japheth result in blessing. Shem's blessing is particular, but notice who gets the glory for that blessing. It's not Shem, it's blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, right? Shem's blessing is that salvation and blessing will come through the line of Shem. They call the Jewish people Semites, right? Because they came from the line of Shem and that God's blessing would move through them. So it's begun with a pronouncement that was given to Eve, then we see it go to Seth, it goes on down to Noah, then it goes down to Shem, and then we're going to see it particularize even more to the person of Abraham as we move forward. Warren Wearsby rightly observes it's through Israel that we have blessing in this world, right? The knowledge of the true God, the written word of God, the Savior Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. But how would Japheth find protection under the tent of Shem? Well, this is a word picture And in the course of history, salvation, again, comes through Jesus. But then we see, after Jesus dies on the cross, that salvation goes to all the world. So that the Gentile people get to experience the benefits that the Jewish people had been experiencing for years to come. The gospel would come through a Savior. The bounty of salvation would be for all people everywhere. Let's close this out. I want to talk to those of you who maybe this morning you feel a little bit like a Noah or a Ham. Certainly you're not relating with all the stuff that you see in this passage, but you think to yourself, boy, I've messed up before, and maybe I haven't handled other people's shame well. 
Erwin Lutzer gives some very good practical advice for when we fall. He says, Satan, if Satan has won a battle in your life, don't let him win a second battle. Satan, when we fall, likes to throw three lies at us. The first lie is before the fall. He says, sin's not that big of a deal. It's not going to matter. Go ahead and do it. And he gives you all the reasons, the litany of reasons as to why it will be good for you to do this in this moment and how no one's going to find out. Well, shortly after the first lie and we fall, he comes at us with the second lie. Now Satan says to us, well, you've kind of messed up pretty big this time. I mean, you could go off and ask for forgiveness. That's something you could do. But you're probably going to do it again, so you might as well just keep doing it. And after we've fallen susceptible to that lie, then he comes with the third. You've done too much. You've done too many wicked things. You've hurt too many people. God would never forgive a wretched person like you. And when the devil has convinced you, he has also enslaved you. But remember 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And his lies are a big part of his works. So the Bible would say to you, if you find yourself in that state, don't try to work harder. Turn to Jesus. If, you, if you've never come to know Jesus, this is the moment where you say within yourself, I can't fix my own problem. I know that I am morally unable to please God with my life. The harder I try, the harder I fall. Come to Jesus. He's the way of salvation, the Bible says. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But say you've been walking with Christ for some time in your life. It's still the same answer. Turn to Jesus. Often we start habitually sinning in our life precisely because we gave him control at salvation and then we try to take control back. Keep looking to him. He's still the one who gives you the salvation. You see, all of our heroes will let us down. They sin dreadful sins like we do. All of our heroes but one. And Jesus is different. He's the hero who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet what? Without sin. He's the perfect hero. He's the only one that you can turn to and find full and final forgiveness, both in this life and in the life to come. Would you bow your heads with me as you consider this thought this